This content was captured during a satellite symposium with a live and virtual audience. This activity is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Bausch & Lomb. My name is Alice Epitropoulos, and I am joined today by my esteemed colleagues, Drs. Michael Greenwood and Dr. Shepard, and I'm very excited to have uh, these two experts join me today uh, to talk about the diagnosis and latest developments in meibomian gland dysfunction and dry eye disease. So before we get started, we want to start out with a short limerick. There once was a gland quite small but its troubles could drive us up the wall. My Bomian dysfunction's the name, and dry eyes are its biggest claim to fame. But fear not, for we have our experts three ready to share their knowledge so free. Dr. Shepard, Dr. Epitropolis, and I will tell all about new treatments that work so well. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride with this expert panel by your side. You'll learn all there is to know about meibomian glands and how to make them flow. <laughs> I had to beg for the applause. <laughs> right. So again, I'm Alice Epitropoulos. I'm a cataract and refractive surgeon in Columbus, Ohio. I'm uh, on faculty at Ohio State. Uh, we have a dry eye center of excellence. Dr. Michael Greenward is quite the overachiever. Uh, he is fellowship trained in cornea and glaucoma. He performs advanced techniques in corneal transplants, uh, refractive surgery, MIGS procedures. He does it all at Vance Thompson Vision at, in Fargo, North Dakota. And John Shepard really needs no introduction. Uh, he is the rock star of ophthalmology. Literally, he is an amazing musician. I asked him to do a rap on that, but uh, uh, he also practices ophthalmology. Uh, he is president at Virginia Eye Consultants and professor of ophthalmology, microbiology, molecular biology at Eastern Virginia Medical School. These are our faculty disclosures that was streaming earlier. And this is a CME program provided by Evolve Medical Education, so thank you for organizing this. So again, here are learning objectives. Uh, by the end of the evening, you should be able to diagnose uh, dry eye disease by subtype based on signs and symptoms, articulate how MGD interacts with dry eye disease, You'll be able to summarize the latest data on treatments for MGD and also compare the pipeline agents nearest to regulatory approval and explain their mechanisms of action. With that, uh, Michael is going to start us off and tell us a little bit more about the prevalence in diagnosing our patients with dry eye disease and MGD. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, I probably need this. Um, just real quick, out in the audience, raise your hand if you're a doctor. And raise your hand if you're a staff member, technician, anything else. And if you don't have any arms, raise your hand. Did I, did I miss anybody? Is there somebody that I missed? Okay. So for those online, the majority of people here are doctors, uh, but we've got some other people as well. So, um, so dry eye is a big problem. They, it, it's uh, the number one most undertreated and underdiagnosed disease in eye care. And... When you think about it, we've got trouble with the eyelid, trouble with the eyelashes, poor position of the eyelids and eyelashes, contractival problems, all three layers of tear film, ocular inflammation, all that stuff. 
And so there's no wonder why it's a huge problem in eye care. And there's about 30 million people that have dry eye disease in the U.S., but only 16 million of them are diagnosed. So half of the people are walking around undiagnosed with dry eye. And it's a huge, huge problem that, you know, we feels like we've been kind of banging the drum on this for a while, but it still is a big problem that's under under-recognized. And the one thing that really sticks out and that maybe isn't known is that the majority of dry eye disease is actually evaporative dry eye disease. So when we first, you know, we'll get into this a little bit more on the treatment side, but in the beginning, you know, we were just doing anything we could to produce more tears, but the problem is the, the major cause or the major pathology is in the evaporative part, um, you know, where you can see here, you know, up to 86% of people have the evaporative dry eye part, which starts with meibomian gland dysfunction. And if you're sitting in the audience being like, I don't see it that much, well, it's out there. 63% of cataract patients, 80% of glaucoma patients, you can see the numbers with contact lens wearers, and just in general, like I mentioned before, 86% have, have dry eye. So patients that are walking into your clinic every single day have meibomian gland dysfunction. We just need to find it and look for it. And so how do we do that? Well, we can ask patients for symptoms, and there's a bazillion different symptoms. I've listed you know, quite a few here, but not everyone's going to come in and complain about that, or they might, you know, patients for sure don't make the correlation on it. They're like, hey, my vision, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. I think I need new glasses. And it's like, no, you probably have dry eye. And, but a lot of times patients are asymptomatic too, and they just don't notice it. Maybe they've got other ocular conditions or systemic conditions where they just can't feel it. And so up to 60% of patients are asymptomatic, but 50% of those patients had central staining, and it can present you know, in up to 80% of patients again. So why does it matter to the people in the room here? Well, one, you're talking to these patients a lot, trying to get them to understand it. Again, they're in your clinic. But more importantly, it can affect your topography, biometry, keratometry, high-order aberrations, which ultimately impacts your cataract, refractive decision-making and your measurements. And so if a patient has dry eye and you don't treat it, they're going to end up with a poor outcome from their cataract surgery, so they're going to be unhappy, and that's going to make me unhappy. So it really is something that we need to address. And there's all sorts of challenges. Again, there's all tor there's different sign, or sorry, different symptoms. Sometimes you get different signs that are conflicting. The symptoms aren't alone diagnostic, and so we need different ways to do it. So we'll kind of talk a little bit about some of the diagnostic testing. And so uh, the first one I'll kind of talk about is osmolarity. Um, and does anybody out in the audience, do you guys use osmolarity? Couple, all right. And so um, the, I want to get all my pictures up here. So the, there, there's different ways to do it, but basically it comes on a, uh, on a little chip. You just take a little sample of the tear, and then uh, from this small little sample, taken you know, usually by the technician, you go and place the device back on the stand, and it gives you a reading. And it gives you a number, and in this case, low is good. Anything under 310 is considered normal. Anything above 310 is considered abnormal. And if you have a difference between 10, between the two eyes, that's also abnormal. And so why does that matter, the difference? Even if they're both under 310, but the difference between the two is 10 or greater, it's because you've got tear film instability. There's just mixtures that are going up and down. And you know, at Cinco de Mayo, we talked about this a little bit, but if you have a high number or high osmolarity, it's like having a little bit too much tequila in your margarita. You're gonna take a sip and it's gonna be a little bit, little bit spicy for you. And so the goal here is we want really dilute tears because dilute tears are better for the surface. If you've got high osmolarity or high concentration of your tears, it's just more concentration of 
stuff that's going to be sitting on your eye, leading to inflammation and starting this cascade of, of dryness. And you, I, I didn't look, but I think you guys use this in the clinic. Do you, you do it on every patient, people that have complaints? Where, where do you guys use osmolarity? Well, there's two ways to approach this. One is a business approach and, and one is a clinical approach. If you try to do every dry eye test on every new dry eye patient or cataract patient who walks in the office, the patient will be there for three hours and you'll have a plethora of information you can't interpret. There's no diagnostic panel like cholesterol. And you can't do more than one thing at a time for a dry eye diagnosis. So if you do an osmolarity and then you put in a plug, you only get paid for the highest code. In reality, it's our job to look at the patient and try to figure out what the most important problem is. And as a screening tool, osmolarity is great because it will tell you if they have dry eye or if their litany of complaints is due to another problem like allergy, meibomian gland disease, or lid dysfunction, or toxicity or environmental problems. So it's a, it's a good differentiator. It's a good initial binary pathway determination of whether or not they really have dry eyes. So it's, it's very useful, and it's very subject to user error. If your technicians don't know how to collect this, if they don't get to the machine in time, and if patients been taking their drops, I never let them have any drops whatsoever before they have this test. You may even have to bring them back on another visit to get an accurate test. But it's very useful under controlled circumstances. Well, I, you know, I, I think it's important, especially in our um, preoperative patients that are undergoing cataract surgery, to really, you know, try to assess this, identify dry eye disease before, you know, we published a paper in 2015 showing that patients that were hyperosmolar had greater variability in their K readings and IOL power calculations compared to normal osmolar patients. So it really kind of helps to identify those patients that are at high risk of refractive surprises. Who published that study? Uh, Dr. Epitropoulos, Dr. Matosian. Uh, there were several authors on that paper. <laughs> very nice. Thank you very much. So moving on, uh, another diagnostic test that you can use is sort of a, another screening test is an inflammatory marker looking for MMP9 in tears. It's a nonspecific inflammatory marker with a you know, pretty wide normal range. Um, and, and it's a little bit more sensitive diagnostic marker than their clinical signs, um, but it does have good correlation with the clinical exam findings. And so the way this works is similar to, um, you know, we showed with the, the, the tear sample collection, but it's a, um, basically a, not preloaded, but ready to go device with a small little absorbent sponge on the end. You have the patient look up, you soak up some of the tears, and then you assemble the test, you wait a little bit, and then it gives you you know, you know, one line, two line, and it tells you if it's positive or negative, similar to, you know, we used to always reference like a pregnancy test. Nowadays, it's a COVID test. And, um, and so you can see how that kind of works. And so, so same question, uh, real briefly, do you, uh, how many people in the audience use this test on a routine or use it in general? So not as many as the previous, and then uh, you guys use this, yes or no? I have it in our office. Um, you know, I think that you know, like uh, Dr. Shepard said, you know, we have our technicians doing so many things, and you know, so we, you know, we use it in preoperative patients, but not consistently not really. on. Yeah, and we're, we're we're kind of the same with with both of those. Mm -hmm. It's another binary differentiator. If you're convinced they have inflammation, you go down the anti-inflammatory pathway. It's semi-quantitative. You have like the light, the normal, and the super pink. It gives you about 40, 80, and 120 uh, nanograms per milliliter, and you can actually follow these as a response indicator for a given anti-inflammatory topical agent. Question, sir. Bill, perhaps there are public 
That's the FACO study from Bill Trattler, yes. Can you, repeat, can you repeat the question for the online people? No, our, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bill Trattler from, from South Florida published a paper. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure, Alice, you're familiar with this. Mm -hmm. He found that almost 50% had lid margin disease pre-op, which is an astounding number. I haven't seen that paper, but just to comment, I mean, to go back, you know, to the, one of the original slides, you're, you're correct. Like, it is an astounding number, and, and we're just not recognizing it or maybe taking advantage of some of the, you know, not, not the diagnostic part, but the therapeutic part where we want to address it ahead of time. Because, again, if, if they've got, you know, signs, symptoms, it's interfering with their biometer and stuff like that, you're not going to get the result you want, and the patient isn't going to get it either. And um, and now with some like emerging treatments, now we have the opportunity to to address that a little bit better than we did in the past. That's the often quoted FACO study. He looked at the pre-op cataract patients. Seventy-eight percent had dry eye. Three quarters didn't know it and complain of symptoms. And so about two-thirds of those dry eye patients had MGD. That's kind of the same as Mike Lem's study from over a decade ago when he saw that 86% of dry eye patients had MGD. And Priya Gupta came up with very similar findings showing the high prevalence of patients with dry eye disease uh, presenting for cataract surgery. So those were kind of like the, you know, quote unquote invasive procedures because you have to physically, you know, touch the patient. This, this is an example of something that's, uh, you know, non-invasive or imaging kind of based. And so there's ocular surface interferometers, and they can look at lipid layer and see how, you know, thick or thin it is. And again, you know, more is better in this case because you want to have uh, a nice lipid layer that's sitting on top of your tear film so it sticks around longer, it spreads it out nice and neat. And then you can also uh, take a look at the, the blink ratio, like how often are patients blinking all the way because that mechanical action of the eyelids touching, you know, coming together and blinking, that helps decrease inflammation, keep the meibomian glands open, you know, so that the, the wine bottle isn't getting corked up, so to speak. Uh, I don't know why all my references are alcohol-based in this moment, but we, I tell patients, you want your meibomian glands to be nice and open, you don't want them corked up like that, you don't want it to come out like thick toothpaste, you want it to come out, you know, the consistency of oil. But, but so there's, there's ways to measure that, and I forgot to poll the audience, but does anybody use this uh, in, in your practice on a routine basis? So yeah, again, so fewer. Uh, we use this one quite a bit. Um, and, and the other thing that comes along with this is the meibomian gland structure, and so I like to compare this you know, for the people that don't treat you know, dry eye or meibomian gland dysfunction on a routine basis, but you're, you're, everyone's used to looking at optic nerves, and so it's sort of like comparing it to glaucoma status where you've got a nice healthy nerve or you've got a nice healthy meibomian gland structure, but as soon as you start to see some changes, now you want to take intervention before it's at end stage and it's too late. Because once you <clears throat> lose these meibomian glands, you can't really get them back, and so you want to keep, keep what you have. Uh, so we, we use this a fair amount, and when I first got it, I was like, I don't, I don't really need this. Like, I can see my bomian gland dysfunction or blocked up glands, you know, very easily at the slit lamp. But this is a great tool for educating patients. It's another, you know, reference is like an x-ray to them. And patients want to see it. They want to know, like, why do I have dry? What's causing it? And so you can show them, like, hey, here's your meibomian gland uh, structure. Here's what normal is. And they're like, oh, my gosh, like, I, I bet I, I got to do something about this. Like, I'm worried that I'm losing something. Um, and and 
I got, you know, if you don't want to get any of the, the, the tools or the diagnostics or the thing we talk about, we've always got our clinical exam. And, and this is just another example showing what kind of normal function is. Again, when you press on these lids, you want it to come out like a nice oil, uh, you know, very easy to come out, spreads very nicely. When it gets a little bit more thick, you know, and kind of clumpy, you can push on it gently and you can see it kind of come out kind of, you know, like unmixed peanut butter maybe. Um, and then it gets into like the toothpaste stuff and, uh, and you just don't want it to be that way. And you can describe it to patients that way. They understand those references very well. And so if you don't, in, you know, you don't need these tests, but you've got to do a good clinical exam because if you don't look for it, you're going to miss it but we know that it's out there and it's very easy to do. You have the patient look up, you have the patient look down, you can press gently you know, on the exterior of their, of their lid margin and you can see what the consistency and the number of their glands is gonna be. So that's you know, the, the diagnostics in a nutshell. That was a great summary. Um, I wanted to ask, do you um, do a DRIA questionnaire? Um, in yeah, the office? We, we do, um, and we use kind of like a variation of the speed test, mm -hmm. and um, so we use it, but we, we don't look at it all the time, uh, which is, you know, a sin on our end, but, but we do use it because it can help tease things out a little bit, or it provides like a, a prompt for the technicians to, you know, when they get it, they can look at it, and they can start asking the patients a little bit deeper on the questions, like, hey, I see that you checked off a couple of these boxes, you know, fluctuating vision, whatever. Um, you know, can you tell me more? And that helps us dive a little bit, be a little bit deeper. So it, we do use it because it helps kind of stimulate conversation. How about you, John? It's a nice system to have. You like to have a standardized symptom inventory. My favorite ocular surface disease inventory is, do you have dryness, itching, or burning? That's all I want to know. But we also do a speed test, and a great way to do that because it's qualitative and uh, frequency-oriented is you use Freesia, which is an inventory intake uh, iPad-like device, and you give it to the patients. They put all their data in there. They put their complaints in. They can fill out a questionnaire. Then you get a number, and you can see if uh, somewhat objectively they're improving. So if you haven't looked at Freesia, it, it saves you about two FTEs at the front desk. And we use the speed questionnaire also, and you know my technicians actually, you know, use that um, in order to kind of take it to the next step. If they're symptomatic, then they'll go ahead and get point of care testing. If they're asymptomatic, then they don't. And again, a lot of that is billing. But don't be fooled because there's a lot of asymptomatic dry eye patients out there. So once we identify dry eye disease then we can customize treatment based on the type and the severity of the disease. And a lot of this, you know, it, you know the ASCRS algorithm um, uses, you know, whether it's visually significant or not. We can also um, use this to determine the most appropriate implants to use for patients considering cataract surgery. Um, one, you know, one of the first-line therapies for dry eye disease are omega-3s. Uh, uh, that has been shown to help with signs and symptoms of dry eye. And, um, you know, especially, um, again, uh, you know, those patients that are thinking about premium uh, lenses. And, you know, again, patients that have signs of inflammation, if they have uh, reduced tear production, then I think it's, um, you know, I think it's a very appropriate to use an immunomodulator. And both cyclosporin and lafitagrass have been shown to improve lipid layer parameters 
uh, in several clinical trials to date. And topical steroids have been used for years off-label to treat dry eye disease. And now we have an FDA-approved, um, you know, it's a nano, uh, nano suspension of lodopredinol, atavinate 0.25%. And it's FDA-approved to treat both signs and symptoms of dry eye disease up to two weeks. And despite the potency of lodopredinol, it is an ester steroid, which is considered safer with lower side effects. The use of topical antibiotics with or without uh, steroids uh, can also be very helpful for those patients that have chronic lid disease and MGD. And um, I, I love the fact that azithromycin is back uh, in our armamentarium. And I think it's specifically um, advantageous uh, for its anti-inflammatory effects. Um, distinct from its antibiotic properties. Um, it penetrates into the ocular tissues and has a very long duration of action. So a lot of my patients, just for maintenance therapy, I have them using uh, azithromycin once a week. Um, some studies have shown that azithromycin is as effective or even more effective than oral doxycycline. Do, do either one of you use azithromycin? No, but I, as you're talking about it, I, I use it, but... Um, not, not in the same way you do, but as you were mentioning that, I was like, ah, oh, that's like a really good idea. So it's probably something that I'm going to actually start doing more of. Yeah. I use it orally as well, and it's a lot cheaper than a Z-Pack. I, I prescribe Z-Packs almost every day for people who have pulmonary symptoms. It achieves wonderful blood levels, and you can use it systemically. But topically, it's a very viscous preparation, and the bottle only has about 12 drops in it, so it's a bit of a nuisance. In Europe, TEA has a BID preparation that's a little bit easier to apply and more plentiful. But the anti-inflammatory, anti-collagenase, and MMP9 activity, as well as the broad-spectrum antimicrobial activity, make it a, a great choice. Topically, a lot of my patients will use it at night, one week out of the month, and that seems to be a good maintenance therapy and unaffordable under the current circumstances. And then also, um, antibiotic steroid uh, combinations you know, with tobramycin have also been very uh, beneficial for patients with uh, lid margin disease. Um, it contains the xanthan gum, which is a the vehicle, um, and that um, allows the, you know, kind of maximum um, surface, maximum um, ocular surface uh, penetration. So you can actually have a lower concentration of a steroid uh, which, you know, is equivalent to um, higher dose. And then also, um, you know, it, it is also very effective for um, methicillin-resistant um, uh, staph and strep. So um, it's, a, it's a great option that we often uh, forget about. And then also, patients that don't respond to topical um, uh, antibiotics or to physical therapy, um, then, you know, we often resort to oral, um, you know, antibiotics like John said, you know, especially those patients that have inflammation, rosacea, um, that are a little bit more resistant. Um, and tetracycline and its derivatives, such as doxycycline and minocycline, have also, you know, they've been used and, and found to be very effective um, in these patients with chronic leg disease. Um, and again, research supports low doses of doxycycline. Um, so when I prescribe um, this to my patients, I usually give them 20 milligrams uh, twice a day, and that has been shown to be as effective as higher doses. 
So um, I like to uh, look at um, you know treating the you know treating this as a three-step approach. There's several in-office procedures that uh, that we can perform. So again, lid margin hygiene, removal of obstruction, and reduction or elimination of um, inflammation. And you know these three mechanisms work synergistically. Uh, but are most effective when treated earlier before atrophy uh, or there's permanent damage to those glands. Microblepharo exfoliation um, uses a medical grade microsponge to exfoliate the lids and the lashes, reducing bacteria and demodex uh, that contributes to inflammation and obstruction of the glands. And the biofilm is analogous to the plaque that builds up around the gums and the teeth that, that causes that chronic uh, uh, gum disease. Uh, Thermopulsation, or lipoflow, um, it uses a combination of heat and vectored pulsation, and it is applied to the anterior and posterior uh, lid margins to um, unclog those obstructed glands. It's been around the longest. It's a, it was FDA approved in 2011. Um, it's a 12-minute procedure, and one treatment has been shown to last up to three years. And then there is the Ilux, which is a handheld thermal device, and it, uh, what makes this unique is it allows that direct visualization of the glands through a magnifier, and you can actually customize this by kind of going back to maybe address glands that look a little bit more clogged or a little bit more inflamed. And again, it, it applies um, focal heat through a light source um, to those obstructed glands. And you know, this was a study uh, uh, that Joe Tauber did um, and colleagues, and uh, he showed a comparison of objective and subjective effects, and it went out to four weeks uh, with Ilux compared to Lipoflow. Um, Ilux uh, was non-inferior to Lipoflow. Both treatments produced significant improvements in symptoms and in meibomian gland dysfunction testing. Uh, there was no statistically significant differences between the two uh, treatments. Um, and again, I think it's important to keep in mind that this goes out to four weeks. It'll be interesting to see, you know, if, if we come out with data that uh, one year or two, you know, three years. Um, then there is the tear care, which is a, um, uses a localized heat uh, therapy. It's applied to the external lids for about 15 minutes. Patients can still blink uh, throughout the procedure, and uh, it's recommended that it is followed by manual expression. And again, this was uh, another study that was published by uh, Priya Gupta uh, and John Hovanesian. Uh, it was published in Cornea, looking at tear care compared to, uh, again, Lipoflow. And you'll see in the black bars is uh, tear care treatment, and in the gray, is the Lipoflow, and results, again, were equivalent for the improvement in dry eye signs, uh, tear breakup time, uh, meibomian gland scores, conjunctival, corneal staining, and meibomian gland health. And again, this is uh, out to four weeks. And then Miboflow um, is another in-office procedure. It delivers heat up to 108 degrees to the tarsal conjunctiva. It is non-disposable, and um, you can adjust the treatment settings.
And then there's the hands-free goggle system. There's Thermal One uh, Touch and iExpress um, that provides a uniform regulated heat to the external surface of the um, external uh, lids. And manual meibomian gland uh, expression. Uh, sorry to have to do this while you guys are champagne. eating dinner. Champagne. That's, <laughs> right. a, that's a good one. Cheers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that, is, that is incredible. <laughs> so I have this patient actually come into my office about every three months uh, to get this. And it's, it's actually pretty humorous because my staff lines up to watch it. Um, but it, oh, how old is that patient roughly? She is uh, about 45. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. she looks young. Yeah. And she, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's therapeutic. She feels better after, so after I, express. So, you, know, you went through all the, uh, you've got one more slide, maybe I'll mm -hmm. wait until you're done. Yeah. Go ahead, if you uh, want to come. So, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I've, I've had all of the, except for the goggles, I've had all of those thermal things done to me. I think they're, <clears throat> I think they're all great. Have you had this? Uh, no, no. <laughs> and I have like mild MGD, I'm pale guy, like prone to it. And, um, but I think they're great. And patients like different ones for different reasons. Some like to have their eyes open, they like to see what's going on. I personally like um, the thermal pulsation where I can't see anything, because we, we put them on we turn it up, we turn on some spa music, we dim the lights, and I just like it's a dry eye relax spa. and yeah, it is a dry eye spa. So the, I, the, it feels good and like they, it, they work very well from, for me. Uh, billing and stuff like that has been a little bit more challenging, but, uh, but, but all of them are great and, and patients love them for different reasons. Yes, I agree. And then introductal probing uh, using a micro cannula also helps to relieve obstructed meibomian glands, and it should be done under um, uh, local anesthesia because it can be pretty uncomfortable. And IPL, um, actually it was originally developed for dermatology, uh, but has been adopted uh, more recently with rosacea and MGD. And it again targets those um, abnormal inflammatory telangiectatic vessels that contributes to inflammation. And it was just recently approved uh, for treating uh, signs of dry eye disease due to MGD. So again, incorporating various therapies and advanced office-based uh, um, treatments will allow for greater success in management of this disease and improving long-term outcomes. Um, so again, I'm very excited to hear what's uh, in the future uh, for these patients with chronic lid disease and MGD. A lot of excitement in this field. Similarly, with uh, thermal pulsation, the doctor places the interfaces and then leaves the room. So there's, there's a, a, an MDOD touch for the patient. Uh, the mask and probe is very effective in people who don't experience much pain. If they have a low threshold, beware. And there's another new treatment out. It's a radio frequency mask that can be used in the office or at home or both with a digital interface uh, developed uh, by IDATEC and Barry Linder sitting over there, which is the, the future of ocular surface analysis and intervention for meibomian gland disease uh, with a wide variety of patient presentations. 
But the pharmacologic future is truly exciting. We, we existed for nearly 20 years with one drug for dry eye, the infamous Restasis, which still sells more than anybody else at about a half a billion dollars, despite uh, generics in the marketplace. But the future has a, a number of great candidates ahead of us, uh, Azura and Novalik and uh, Aldera and Tarsus have exciting products that will be in your prescription pads uh, within the next two to three years. Uh, Mark Gleason's Australia company, Azura, has developed an ad adaptation of a very popular skin medication that works upon the meibomian glands yielding liquid secretions, opening the glands in phase two clinical trials with remarkable sign and symptom results. It works upon disulfide bonds. It's a, a agent that removes uh, various forms of concretions and keratinization on the lid margin, just as it does for dermatologic patients. And about 50% of patients became asymptomatic, and the mybomian gland quality returned to normal for at least three months. And you see a reduction of, of clogging, saponification, and the delightful spaghetti produced in Dr. Epitropolis's Ohio office. Must be the Columbus diet. So the phase 2B studies uh, truly showed significant improvements. They used the speed score as their, as their primary endpoint, and they found visual analog scale improvements in discomfort and ocular itching as well. There were adverse events, but they were mild and transient, similar to non-treated subjects, and discontinuation was only about 2%. So Novo3 was developed by Novalik in Heidelberg, Germany, and they have partnered with Bausch & Lohm. There are two confirmatory registration phase three trials, the Gobi and the Mohav, and they showed primary efficacy in signs and symptoms in both trials. Uh, the sign, of course, was central corneal fluorescein staining, and the symptom was visual analog scale dryness. And you will see here, at, at the very beginning of the trial, even within two weeks, that both the signs and symptoms improved with a very narrow standard deviation. Uh, the control, the placebo, was uh, cysteine balance, a drop of uh, over-the-counter similar viscosity to the active agent. And you can see here that in, in both trials, the floral, uh, corneal fluorescein staining dropped very quickly and remained low consistently in both trials, whereas the analog dryness scale decreased and continued to decrease all the way up until the secondary endpoint of 57 days. The primary endpoint, of course, was at 29 days. So this shows rapid onset of action with statistical significance uh, not seen in other clinical trials. Uh, the safety was remarkable. The side effects, the complaints were the same as the vehicle. Uh, we found that in, in some of the analyses, even in responders, that only about 0.2% of patients had significant installation site discomfort. That, again, is unprecedented in other clinical trials. Uh, the reason that Novo3 is so effective is it's not really a drug. It's, it's just physical chemistry in action. It's a coating agent. It spreads on the surface of the eye immediately. It's a semi-fluorinated alkane. It's water-free, therefore no preservatives. The drop size is only 10 microliters. And it coats the eye. It prevents evaporation. So when you had to take physical chemistry as an undergraduate in pre-med, you might have actually developed a product like this. It is not really a pharmaceutical. And it's different, a different mode of action. You can put in active agents to put this in afterwards, in my opinion, and use conjunctive adjunctive therapy. So uh, this has a PDUFA date in June. I, I believe that it will be approved.
Reproxilap is from Todd Brady's company in Boston, Aldera. This is a RASP inhibitor. Who's heard of reactive aldehyde species in medical school? Nobody. You know, nobody's heard of a number of parallel important anti-inflammatory targets that have heretofore not been addressed. We all know about steroids and lipooxygenase and cyclooxygenase. Well, the, these reactive aldehyde species are causing mischief throughout our body, especially on the ocular surface. And if you look at the phase two and three studies, the tranquility trials, which have been duplicated, you see an immediate drop in both the, the ocular dryness score as well as the dry eye chamber score. There's a CAE, a controlled adverse environment, where you stick someone in a box with 18% humidity and make them stare upwards for an hour and a half at a TV with a fan blowing in their face. And that's meant to accelerate the development of dry eye signs and symptoms and facilitate the analysis of rapid recovery with a given pharmaceutical agent. It's worked well in phase two and uh, earlier trials. It hasn't worked really well in phase three trials, but it's, it's a great torture test. The Schirmer test was also shown to improve and show sustained improvement. And the responder analysis showed re remarkable uh, duration and patient satisfaction. Uh, this particular agent is also submitting data for the treatment of allergic disease. This is a steroid efficacy-like drug without steroid side effects. And to have a, a dual indication for allergy and dry eye meets a huge unmet need. There's probably about two-thirds of the 30 million dry eye sufferers in this country who also suffer from ocular allergy. Uh, ocular allergies are the most common form of allergy in this country. So over 12 weeks, the Reproxilab treatment was superior to the vehicle in both signs and symptoms in both trials. And the symptoms approved uh, within one to three minutes, as shown in the trial. And one of the adjunctive uh, secondary endpoints was ocular redness, which also improved in the conjunctiva. So the duration in the trials was up to 12 weeks. This is preservative-free, it's well-tolerated, and the lack of adverse events and excellent tolerability also give us great promise. Uh, the reactive aldehyde species metabolite, maldonaldehyde, can be measured in tears. It's higher in dry eye patients. When you give the drug, maldonaldehyde decreases concomitant and in conjunction with the signs and symptoms. So this is actually a, a verified biomarker for improvement in a disease with an integrated inflammation target that corresponds to that metabolite. So the FDA may actually recognize this biomarker in approving the drug. Uh, Lota Lanner is, is from Tarsus Pharmaceutical. Liz Yu, my partner, is the CMO of this company. And they have a, a whole litany of trials all the way up to phase three that shows that this drug, which is a, a specific antiparasitic drug, uh, decreases cholerets. It's not hard to diagnose this. You don't need expensive machines and really good technicians. You just tell the patient to look down and you look for cholerets. If you're really uh, obsessive compulsive, you can yank out the lash and look under the microscope at the living, breathing, crawling demodex and gross everybody out, including the patient. It's even more motivational than a mybomography. But they saw that there was a, a rapid progression to uh, elimination of the cholerets at the primary endpoint at day 43, and that clinically meaningful cholerette cure, but not complete elimination, uh, was also highly statistically significant, and this activity persists in the patient. So this is actually a, a treatment that treats the disease. We've had a lot of interventions for demodex 
blepharitis, like hypochlorous acid and tea tree oil and a wide variety of commercial products, uh, but they're just sterilizing antiseptic agents. This is a drug that kills parasites, and it's relevant to a number of systemic third world infections as well. So you can see that the TAEs were minimal, and they were similar to vehicle, and the drop discomfort uh, was quite satisfactory or very satisfactory in about three quarters of the patients. So we believe the compliance will be good and that patients will have continued relief. About 80% of people over the age of 80 have Demodex. So raise your hand if you don't have Demodex. Thank you. <laughs> Exciting stuff on the horizon for all of us. It's cool because, again, like we're, you're addressing multiple different mechanisms of action with these things, stuff that doesn't exist yet. So it's more you know, tools in our toolbox that, that we can use to you know, address all the variety of causes. It's like being an internist. You, know, you really have a, a very nice way to distinguish different forms of ocular surface disease. My late mentor, Dick Thoft, was the first to identify the ocular surface. There's eight components. There's the conjunctival, there's the corneal epithelium, there's the nasolacrimal drainage system, and the lids and anexa, and there's the lacrimal functional unit, that unit that produces tears. The meibomian glands, the goblet cells, and the aqueous producers, and the lacrimal glands, major and minor. And then, of course, there's the fifth and seventh cranial nerve and the tear film. So there's a, a number of direct interventions that can be applied to each of those individual components, and the ocular surface only functions as well as its weakest member, just like an orchestra with seven virtuosos and one squeaky violin. They sound lousy. Very good. I'm very excited for the future for these dry eyes. Usually don't, yeah, usually you're not talking about like, hey, dry eyes like super awesome. I can't wait for a patient to come in and talk about their dry eye, but I think we're like getting to that point now. Well, I'd like to just take a couple minutes and entertain any questions before we go into our case presentation. Anybody have any questions or online? Any questions? We have one question from uh, Dr. Renaud. How much emphasis on correct blinking quality and pace do you emphasize to your patients? Are there drugs and procedures that, that have effects that don't last when compared to ocular exercises and perhaps direct lid environmental control? So um, I'll take a stab at it. I mean, I mention it to patients quite a bit. Like even when we're doing like a YAG or anything like that, you can see that they just aren't blinking, they're staining and stuff there. And so I just mentioned to them like, hey, your eyes are pretty dry. Like you just don't blink very much. And they'll kind of, they'll look at me and say, what? And I'm like, well, blink. And I'll say like, you, you can't tell, but your eyes aren't going all the way down. So every once in a while when you remember, just blink real hard and, and that'll help things out. And then, um, so I don't, I don't know any data on it, but I, I do know that it's helpful, uh, you know. And then there is some stuff in the pipeline for people that have uh, like paralysis that will, you know, trigger them to start blinking and do that so they don't have to worry about exposure, keratopathy and things. You know, there was a study that uh, the normal blink rate is about 20 blinks per minute. And when we're looking at our digital device, our phone or computer, that blink rate drops down to four to six uh, blinks per minute, pretty dramatic. And with the digital era that we're living in today, I think that explains, you know, some of the increase in prevalence that we've, you know, seen with MGD, along with the average American diet, to, to, you know, in, in Columbus, Ohio. Um, so, <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, I, I implement the 20-20-20 rule. Every 20 minutes, look, you know, 
look 20 feet across the room, blink several times, maybe put some lipid-containing tears, and then resume your, your tasks. Yeah, this is where cranial nerve five and seven come in. If there's a seven problem, they don't blink well. If there's a five problem, they don't feel any irritation, so they don't blink. And, and clearly, younger people are getting dry eye disease. We have worldwide epidemics of ocular surface disease because of digital devices and of myopia because of digital devices and the continued use. So there's going to be a job for all of us for the foreseeable future, thanks to my cell phone. <laughs> all right, any other questions before I go on to this case? All right. So this is a 66-year-old uh, physician, surgeon, uh, that comes in for um, cataract evaluation. He's complaining of glare, halos, starbursts at nighttime. He also complains of intermittent blurring, especially when he's using his you know, EMR system or computer. Um, and you know, his speed score is a five, so he's not real symptomatic. Um, and again, no really other uh, past ocular history other than contact lens wear. But he says he really doesn't feel comfortable driving at night anymore. Um, again, he's experiencing difficulty reading, using the computer. And again, you know, I think it's pretty significant, the, the symptom of vision coming and going. That's, you know, that's probably one of the most significant uh, symptoms that patients have that... Uh, you know, they might not realize that they have dry eye disease. That, along with tearing. So many patients would come in and say, well, I'm tearing, how can I have dry eye disease? All right, so here's, here's um, his exam. He's got collarettes, so he's got some Devonex going on. Uh, he's got significant staining on the, on, in the cornea and conjunctiva. Um, Flomax history, so he really only dilates to five. He's got uh, three plus NS, and his best corrective vision is 2040. So I'd like to hear from my panel experts to see how you would treat this uh, nice uh, physician that wants his cataracts taken out. I'll start. <laughs> we'll go. Yeah. Uh, or would go, you I would you treat him, or would you yeah. go straight to cataract? Yeah. No, I would not go straight to cataract surgery. It was like, as you're reading this down, I was like, oh my, like this guy has everything, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so I used, you used to, you know, so you kind of have a, two approaches to this of like, well, do I just do a kind of a little bit and kind of do a step rise approach? Um, but when you do that, it's kind of like, hey, your house is on fire, so you throw a bucket of water at it. So he's got so much going on, and he, you know, he's, he's a busy person. He probably doesn't have time to do a lot of stuff, but he also doesn't have time to waste, you know, with poor vision, he probably wants to have surgery and get moving. So I would hit this guy hard with as much stuff as I can. And depending on your clinic or whatever, you know, you have available, but you're, you know, he's got the collarette, so you, you want to address that with something that's, you know, commercially available. In the future, we've got something coming down the pipe, which will be, you know, probably more convenient. And then, you know, he's got my bombing gland problems. And, and so you start working on that. Uh, and, and get him going as fast as he can. So I'm probably doing, you know, he doesn't have any plugs, so I'm doing, you know, plugs. I'm doing some sort of meibomian gland treatment. Yeah, you've got the pictures there, so he's got severe dropout, mm -hmm. and, and so you want to address that, you know, as quick as you can. John, would you I, I get three types of dry eye patients. One, the patient who's seen five other doctors and has 17 complaints and 50 articles with them when they come to the office. They're very complicated, so you only change one intervention at a time so you know what's going on and they think you're paying attention. Uh, the second is a complex patient with other ocular diseases, especially glaucoma, because they're putting poison in their eye every day and destroying stem cells. Uh, the third type is like this. It's a surgical candidate 
So you throw out the scientific method. You, you try to find something wrong with every system in the ocular surface and treat it directly. So I don't care if they get better on plugs and doxycycline and steroids and some type of a, a super tear and my booming gland excretion, the whole works. Just get the job done as quickly as you can so you normalize the biometry. And if three of the interventions work and three of them don't, you don't care. They have a normal surface. They have a nice a low HOA assessment on their topography, and they're ready to go with their premium lens. Understanding that their dry eye will come back if they don't keep taking their medicines, and they'll be really mad if you put in a trifocal. <laughs> so to, um, to your earlier point, obviously MGD is extremely prevalent in patients coming in for you know, cataract surgery. In a, in a study um, that uh, Dr. Kushner did, uh, 180 patients, 56% showed some level of MGD, and half of those were asymptomatic. So again, you have to look for this disease. You're not going to always get patients telling you that they have dry eye disease. And if you miss the diagnosis, there's going to be some consequences. Your biometry is going to be off. Patients are going to come to you afterwards saying, my eyes are so uncomfortable now that you did, took my cataracts out. They weren't uncomfortable before, and it's your fault. So, you know, again, um, you know, looking at literature that we talked about before, you know, that the prevalence of dry eye disease is extremely common. Eight out of 10 patients coming in for cataract surgery have signs and or symptoms of dry eye disease. So again, this patient I uh, treated with hot compresses, omega-3s, uh, lipoflow treatment, um, put them on a topical anti-inflammatory drop, and also lipid-containing artificial tears, brought them back about four weeks later for uh, biometry. And you can see that the biometry, the rings look more symmetrical, more normal, and uh, he's, he was happy to go ahead and uh, proceed with uh, cataract surgery with uh, better biometry. So, given how common dry eye disease and MGD are, should we be proactively asking patients probing questions about fluctuating vision, tired eyes, and other symptoms of MGD, or should we wait until they complain? I, I think we need to be proactive on it, and it sort of depends on what they're coming in for. Like, you know, you reference the three types of patients that you see. You know, if someone's coming in for a surgery, for sure you got to be asking about it. Um, and because you, you, you just can't start chasing your tail by doing surgery and then chasing everything down and saying, you know, oh, well, you had this before, but I didn't address it, so we did surgery and blah, 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 blah. So I, I think you need to be proactive about it. You need to look for it. It is part of our eye exam, right? You start with the lids, lashes, and work your way back. It's part of, you know, patient care. And so, so I think being proactive is only beneficial for you and, the, and if your patient. Thank you, Mike. Finally, Alice, if a patient doesn't want any procedures, and we know most of them are cash-based, what's your go-to treatment? Well, you know, unfortunately, dry eye disease is a very expensive disease. There's a lot of insurance companies, you know, insurance doesn't cover a lot of the treatments that we have to offer. Um, but again, I think that educating our patients is key. You know, showing them that their tear osmolarity is abnormal. And, it, you know, to your point earlier, showing them their mybography, what it normally should look like compared to what their glands look like. And then patients get it. And if, you know, if they 
realize that it's going to it potentially could affect their outcomes, their surgical outcomes, they're more likely to want to make an investment in their eyes. Um, but, you know, again, if they don't want an in-office procedure, again, I document that. Um, I'll try to see if I can get an immunomodulator, um, you know, approved by, you know, their insurance. You know, try to get them started on omega-3 um, and then using lubricating drops and maybe even a topical steroid to accelerate that. Steroids, yeah. And it, the, the more you can explain to the patient, like, what the true pathology is, the more willing they are to do something about it. You know, you reference Demodex and the mites. And if you tell a patient, hey, you just got some crud on your eye, but take this drop twice a day, it'll make you feel better, they'll be like, I don't know. And if you said, like, hey, you have a mite on your eye, and this drop will, you know, get rid of it, that they're more likely to take it because they want to get rid of the pathology. We have another question. Hi, uh, uh, thank you very much for the, uh, the talk. It's been very interested. Uh, one question is, on the case of the, the physician that's uh, high cataract, uh, on the treatment that you put on, you didn't start on uh, any Demodex treatment, even if you had cholerates. Uh, how often do you usually start doing the Demodex treatment when you find cholerates? Well, you know, that's, that's a great point. So we don't have anything FDA approved right now for Demodex. Um, but what I do is, you know, oftentimes I will, when I do a lipoflow treatment, I will, I will automatically do Bluffex. And Bluffex is pretty effective against Demodex. And then um, I have a protocol for my post-lipoflow uh, patients. Lid scrubs, warm compresses. And for those patients that have cholerets, I'll use tea tree oil. Um, Claridex or some kind of tea tree oil lid scrub. Um, IPL is also pretty effective against um, uh, Demodex too. Uh, but I'm again very excited about the, the Tarsus product that um, is, is uh, in our near future. Thank you to my esteemed uh, faculty for participating. Great job. And thank you again for attending tonight.